Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. It's good to be here. And so today we're going to tackle the thorny, sensitive, complicated topic of surrogacy. Um, Worth flagging up, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about um, infertility and fertility treatment throughout the course of this episode, some where that might be a sensitive or a painful topic for some people listening or for those you know. So just to kind of be aware of that. Um, and and of course, we're going to try and, and, and address this as compassionately, as, as sensitively as possible, because um, infertility and, and issues around um, conception and children often affect a surprisingly high number of people than you'd think. So, um, And it's obviously a very painful topic for many. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, the, the, the statistics are that one in between one in six, one in seven couples will have um, some form of in- infertility and will not be able to have babies without some kind of technological help. So inevitably, there are large numbers of people <clears throat> um, listening to this program. There are large numbers of people in church, in any kind of gathering who've been affected by infertility in some way. And, and and I think just recognizing the the depth of the pain uh, that is, is in particular, it often seems that the church is is very very and quite appropriately pro family and pro child, but it sometimes then is desperately insensitive towards all the people in a church gathering who are unable to have children. Hmm. And the reason we're looking at surrogacy today is because um, here in the UK, there has been recently proposed some reforms to how uh, the surrogacy kind of pathway works. Um, it's it's kind of currently very uh, kind of lightly regulated, um, or at least the regulations are quite old and out of date. And so uh, a very a kind of official body called the Law Commission has been kind of running for several years, a big review and consultation, and they published a report kind of detailing some quite extensive reforms to surrogacy and in part that was driven by a big growth in the popularity of of surrogacy here in Britain um we're still talking quite small numbers overall compared to all births a year of course but um about 20 years ago the stats show that there were approximately 100 surrogacies a year in 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 the UK or, or that might just be England and Wales and that's now four times higher it's now up to about 400 a year um and you know you don't have to look far in in popular culture particularly coming out of the states where it's it's much less regulated and more popular for the, there's an increasing number of kind of celebrities musicians artists politicians who are starting their families this route or at least being more open about it so it certainly feels like surrogacy is is having a cultural moment if you like yeah that's right and of course it's always been there and you can go back into ancient history can't you and and there's always been ways of using another person to to provide a child um you can think of abraham and hagar in the uh, in genesis um and so uh ancient practices of different forms of surrogacy have always been there um what changed it all, I think, was um, the the development of in vitro fertilization. Mm. 
So we've talked about IVF on on previous podcasts. Um, that kind of came about in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, I believe, and that was uh, the kind of development of the of the ability to to fertilize sperm and egg outside of the human body so-called test tubes babies i don't think it's actually done in test tubes as far as i'm aware you can probably correct me on that um and uh and then reinsert this fertilized egg back in into um a woman um that was obviously intended that technology was kind of intended to be a treatment for for infertile couples and the and the intent was that uh the kind of carrying mother would also be the genetic mother but that's actually also the technology can also be used very easily if you you can reimplant um, the the fertilized egg into the womb of of a third party of a, of a second woman who's not the genetic um, origin of of the egg. Yes, that's right. So IVF opens up. Uh, you you've basically got four completely independent variables. You've got the source of the sperm, the source of the egg, the source of a womb, and uh, someone who's going to look after the baby once the baby's born and. Uh, none of those four variables need be interrelated and therefore you get different permutations and combinations and and indeed surrogacy uh where you're you're using um somebody else uh to provide the womb um you the the person who is commissioning the baby can either provide one of the gametes the egg or the sperm or they or they may be unrelated to that so again there are these a uh, whole range of possibilities hmm. and kind of gestational surrogacy as it's known which is where um either the sperm or the egg or both come from the the intended parents or the commissioning parents as they're sometimes known um it's then implanted into the the womb of of the surrogate mother um, with the with the plan that when the child is born, it's kind of handed back to their genetic parents. That's um, a really increasingly popular form, and by, and today is the most common form of surrogacy, so that the child is going to be genetically to at least one or maybe both of the kind of receiving receiving parents. Um, and and I guess what the the law is the law of reforms that they're proposing are trying to really recognise this fact and adjust how it is regulated in the UK to kind of take. Um, acknowledgement of this very changing kind of technological and social landscape from the last time back in the 80s the the parliament here legislated around surrogacy yes so so to back up what what's currently we as we understand and we ought to add that neither of us are uh experts in in this particular quite very technical area we're really just giving a sort of lay person's perspective from the outside but as we understand it uh, the law on surrogacy uh, basically prohibits commercial uh, a transaction taking place so that all that is allowed, the money that is allowed to change hands, it can only be so-called reasonable expenses. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's not, you are not purchasing a child using uh, entering into a commercial contract with the, the surrogate mother. And of course, that's one of the big differences with what happens in other countries. So in the USA and elsewhere across the world, it is possible to enter into a commercial contract. Um, but here in the in the UK, you're only allowed to pay for reasonable expenses, quotes. But it, interestingly, reasonable expenses can between can be between 10 and 15 to 20,000 pounds. So it's not an insignificant sum of money. That's right. And 
the other way that the law works at present, which is that um, the carrying mother, the surrogate mother, not the commissioning or intended parent, is the child's legal parent at birth. And indeed, if that mother has a uh, a husband or a civil partner or even a kind of uh, spouse kind of non non married uh, partner living with them, they will often become the legal father of the child, which is how the UK law works. And then separately, the commissioning parents will then post birth have to apply to a, for a court order to transfer legal parenthood from the surrogate and her partner to them. Yeah, so just to back up on that, it's an interesting legal point. But basically, when a baby is delivered, it's not possible to know for certain who is either the genetic father or the genetic mother. The only one person we can be absolutely certain of in law is who actually delivered the baby. You know, there's never any doubt about that. And it's for that reason, I understand it, that really up until this point, the UK law has always said uh, the legal parent of a baby has to be the the mother who delivered the baby. And then, as you say, they goes on and say, if she happens to be married or in a legal civil partnership, then technically her husband becomes the father. Um, in other words, you know, the law doesn't insist on having a DNA test, DNA test to determine paternity. Otherwise, you know, how can we ever be certain who is the father of which child? Hmm. It's all based, as you say, on the the woman whose womb the child came out of, which there is no doubt. And then if she has, is in a relationship, the law kind of recognises if it's a kind of long-standing, stable, habitually living together relationship, the, the, the other person as the father. Um, and that obviously creates issues for a lot of surrogate parents because, you know, they the, the kind of care of the child will be given to them very soon after birth and they will you know take this baby away from the hospital and and live as as a family but in truth the law does not recognize them even if they are genetically the child's mother and father who donated sperm and egg as parents at all um and that has consequences around things like consent for medical treatment and and various other issues in law and so there's a separate process where you have to apply for it to the court for a, what's called a parental order and and then uh, it's not automatic at all, to, irrespective of what agreement you have may, might have made preconception with the surrogate mother. Um, it, the court doesn't disregard that and simply looks at what is in is it in the best interests of this child for the court, the state, to transfer parental responsibility from the surrogate mother and or a partner to these the commissioning intended parents who they are now living with, and and in truth. 99.9% of the time the court concludes yes it is in that child's best interest this is the the family they were kind of always supposed to be they've at this point because of the delays in the system it might be up to a year since the child was born they spent 12 months kind of attaching to these parents it would be against their best interest to kind of force them to go back to the surrogate mother who in many cases will not want to be their mother anyway but 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 in law those parents have no stability and no finality for upwards of 12 months until this parental order has been passed that's right uh, but the other thing that the current law does is, is it allows the surrogate mother have to change her mind you know the law says you know here's here's a woman with a newborn baby her own newborn baby in her arms and we are not going to send the police in to say 
you must give up that baby because it was commissioned by someone else. Um, so the mother is given the the casting vote in a way that that that's that's the some of the thinking behind the current perspective. Yeah, eff- effectively, it's um, what is really happening is that a child is being born. The state is not massively concerned about the genetic organs of that child, and then that mother is voluntarily relinquishing their child to another couple who are effectively adopting the child. Now, that language of adoption isn't used for obvious reasons. You know, commissioning parents don't want to think of themselves as adoptive parents, but in the eyes of the state and the court, that is effectively the kind of transaction that has occurred. And so uh, because there have been all these numerous practical difficulties, I think that's part of the thing that's been driving um, what's sometimes rather pejoratively called reproductive tourism. So people are saying, look, it's so complex and unpredictable here in the UK. Uh, Why don't I go internationally and find... um, a legal system which does give me complete authority and control uh, and we'll find a a surrogate somewhere else in the world. Uh, I will pay for it, I'll commission it, and once the baby's born, I will travel there, pick the baby up and take it back to the UK. And um, before the war started in Ukraine, it it so happened that Ukraine was one of the uh, international centres which had quite a, a significant industry in international surrogacy arrangements yeah that's right and there were actually a kind of rash of stories when the invasion first happened tragic stories really of of parents from various kind of western european countries or, or america often who had um uh, commissioned paid for um surrogates in in ukraine to carry their children what who they saw as their children and then they might, in some cases, they were, you know, a day or two away from, from getting on a plane and flying from the UK or from the US or France or Germany or Ireland or Spain uh, into Kiev to collect their child that had just been born. And then suddenly that was obviously no longer possible because, you know, shells and missiles are raining down on these cities and international travel is not possible. And so you have uh, surrogate mothers, sometimes heavily pregnant, sometimes nursing newborn children who are, have been stuck for months, if not years, in kind of international legal limbo because their kind of desperate, helpless, intended parents on the other side of the world are um, stuck trying to kind of organise an evacuation via Facebook or, or whatever. So it was all very chaotic, very tragic, very confusing, um, and not and and I guess shone a light on on this kind of as you say this international reproductive tourism, as it's sometimes called. Um, where there are a number of nations which do permit commercial surrogacy. And not just that, I mean, even in America, it's permitted, but it's incredibly expensive. It can cost up to $200,000 to do a commercial surrogacy in the States, whereas it might be as cheap as $30,000, dollars $50,000 to do it in a place like Ukraine or previously India, which was a big hotbed for it, but they've actually um, changed the law and banned commercial surrogacy in, in recent years because of concerns about exploitation mainly. That's right. So there have been lots of concerns about this international surrogacy trade, that it was often the surrogate mothers who came from poor families uh, were often doing this out of desperation in order to try and raise money. Sometimes they were doing it to raise school uh, fees for their existing children. 
but that they were often abused by middlemen, that they uh, there were all kinds of scandals and, and concerns about the conditions in which they were being cared for. Um, so you can see, you can understand why the UK says, wouldn't it be better to try and regularise our own system and therefore that there's less uh, incentive for people to go abroad? Yes. And and the other thing we haven't mentioned about the current system is that if you are a, a British family or couple or even single person who commissions a surrogacy overseas, you collect your, your newborn baby and you arrive back at London Heathrow collecting a baby and the state has to decide what is the status of that child. Um, you know, you as the parent very much consider them to be your child, but in the eyes of the state, uh, who are they? Uh, no, is the, is the short answer. So again, internationally, you would then have to apply for a, a, a parental order. And there's very complicated bureaucratic checks where the state is trying to ascertain, we make sure you haven't kidnapped this child. And but there's very difficult to get information from some of the other countries where the 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 um, surrogacy might have taken place and and often courts are kind of left somewhat reluctantly but again they apply the test of what is in the child's best interests and at this point they might have been living for a year or two in the UK with their their new parents and it doesn't really make sense to try and again take them into the UK foster system the care system or try and send them back to whoever if there's no anyone there to collect them back at home and so they kind of normally do grant a parental order but there's a degree of disquiet I think among the kind of in the court system about that that this is again very unregulated, very confusing, ambiguous, and and legally complex. And it wouldn't it be better to try and steer people back towards doing it altruistically in the UK, where it can be properly scrutinised, regulated, and managed? So the law commission has come up with a proposal, um, uh, which is a, a quite a complex and carefully thought out. Uh, pathway um, which uh, starts with finding someone who is is willing to act as a surrogate and that in itself isn't straightforward you're not allowed to just advertise Um, and then undergoing various medical checks and then uh, all the people involved have to have enhanced criminal record checks then you have independent legal advice that all the potential legal pitfalls uh then you have counseling to think through all the implications uh and then there's a a social welfare uh social services will give some kind of assessment about whether uh is this genuinely in the interest of the child who's going to be be born and um eventually if 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 everything is then agreed there is a surrogacy statement which is signed by all the appropriate bodies including a, a formal surrogacy organization and what that means is that from birth the intended parents are the child's legal parents although interestingly there is still I think to protect the surrogates the surrogate can withdraw her consent but only for six weeks so there's a six-week window where she and it's not automatic um, she can six weeks after birth she can withdraw a consent but, but to do so she would have to go to the courts to apply for her own parental order so the the intended parents would be legally the child's parents but the surrogate would have the right if she, within six weeks of the birth if she changed her mind to then go to a judge and, and make the case that the child should be returned to her so it's not automatic but it is an, a, intended to be an additional safeguard if the woman changes her mind 
And then finally, um, once the child is with the new parents, there's a, a formal surrogacy register which would uh, record all the details of who were the genetic parents, who was the uh, the host, a mother, and and so on, and uh, so that uh, at some subsequent date, if the child wants to find out uh, how I came into existence, all that information will be available uh, to the child through this register. Hmm. And the final point about the reforms is is as we mentioned at the start that it, the law bars paying um, kind of commercial payments to to a surrogate mother, but does permit what it describes as reasonable expenses. Um, but there is no clarity or explanation about what is or isn't a reasonable expense. And there are concerns that kind of behind the scenes, some of these so-called altruistic surrogacies are acting as kind of de facto commercial ones. Um, and there's no way of enforcing that, even if you know the courts do become aware that uh, the surrogate mother was paid an additional £10,000 as a kind of goodwill gesture, uh, which would be illegal. Um, there's no, even if they find out that that is the case, um, their only kind of enforcement mechanism would be to to remove the child from the intended parents and return them to the surrogate mother, which is probably something neither party want and is also probably not going to be in the child's own best interests if they've been li- living with the intended parents now for some time. So there's a real kind of like hole in the law. The law kind of technically bars this, but it has no ability to actually stop it from happening. So the other final part of the reforms would be to 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 force parents to make a statutory legally binding declaration about all the pay- payments they're going to make to the surrogate and to have a uh, some kind of uh, form which kind of lays out what payments are allowed and at what amounts, you know, so it's not a free-for-all. You have to say, yes, you can give your surrogate mother this amount of money to cover this cost but only up to this amount. And so it's going to be much more kind of regulated and laid out in that way to try and prevent uh, the kind of uh, back backroom commercial surrogacies. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So, so what do you make of it all? I mean, it seems to me like a very traditional British, highly bureaucratic, regulated, lots and lots of uh, steps and forms to fill and statements to make and uh, professionals to be involved, um, but arguably quite well thought through and and, and intended to try and minimise as much as possible sort of unforeseen disasters yeah I, I have kind of mixed feelings if i'm honest i think you're right it's a compared to the criticism it's an enormous expansion of the kind of state's bureaucratic control there's going to be this new list of registered surrogacy organizations which will be not for profit but they're going to be regulated by the human fertilization and embryology authority and there's going to be registers here and there and welfare checks and legal assessments and and in one sense that is an enormous kind of invasion of the state and the state's bureaucratic power into into start this you know what is ultimately about a child a human being's life on the and you could also argue this only really affects 400ish couples a year 
you know, in the context of in the UK, there are probably hundreds of thousands of babies born by the quote unquote traditional method. So um, because the question there about proportionality, but I, on, I do think that it's it seems to be quite well thought through. They've kind of balanced a lot of the competing needs and rights and responsibilities in this quite complex area. And I do think it addresses some of the real issues with the current UK surrogacy arrangements, which I think do fall short in a number of areas. I was previously quite concerned about the the big change, which is allowing the intended parents to be legal parents from birth, as I saw that as stripping away the surrogate mother's own agency and almost denying the the meaningful and realityness of, of the process of carrying a child for nine months inside your womb. But I am somewhat relieved by this kind of safeguard of saying up to six weeks after birth, the surrogate mother could challenge that in court if they change their mind. And indeed, if they change their mind after conception, but before birth, um, it's then the intended parents would have to challenge that in court. So there's a kind of subtle shift in 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 the kind of balance of power there as as you go through the pregnancy. So yes, it's intensely complex and bureaucratic. I think it's well intentioned, and I think if it is implemented, it will prevent some of the abuses and the problems we see. But it probably doesn't address the kind of underlying ethical concerns we might have around surrogacy in general. Uh, which I think kind of remain there bubbling away in the background. Yes. And also, you know, from a medical point of view, it, to me, you know, unless you had that kind of medical perspective, you would just get the impression that having babies is like falling off a log. You know, it's just like, it's, it's, uh, it's just a, a simple, straightforward biological procedure. And, what I have seen time and time again is how incredibly dangerous uh, the whole process of childbirth can be. And, you know, I have seen mothers die uh, going through an apparently normal pregnancy. I've seen mothers come to catastrophic and permanent injury. And I've seen babies die. And I've seen babies born with catastrophic brain damage uh, in the process of going through birth and delivery. I've seen uh, babies with significant genetic abnormalities, which nobody suspected. Um, and so you can't help wondering what what would happen when one of these surrogacy arrangements is struck by the, the kind of catastrophes which are not that unusual. And this is not just a hypothetical. This has definitely happened in other countries. Um, there was, in all the reporting I was reading around the, the, the tragic situation in Ukraine after the war broke out last year, there was a story about um, a really desperately sad story about uh, some years earlier, um, I think an American couple um, had commissioned a, a surrogate surrogacy, a surrogacy pregnancy in, in Ukraine um, and had you know, paid a lot of money and were very specific about what they, where they wanted the, the mother to, to live and do during the pregnancy. Um, and the child was born and un, and had kind of undetected during pregnancy, it turned out the child had a quite a severe disability. I can't recall. I think it might have been some kind of developmental thing, but they were basically very severely disabled and needed a lot of care. And as soon as the parents heard about this, they said, no, thank you, got on the plane and flew back empty-handed to the States, leaving this child in a kind of legal limbo in Ukraine. Because in, in Ukraine, the child was legal from birth. They have the system already where the intended commissioning parents 
do become the legal parent at birth, but these parents are outside of the jurisdiction of the Ukrainian court system. This mother, a young, vulnerable uh, woman who did this for the money, doesn't want to look after a disabled child. And so suddenly this child is stuck in limbo while, you know, in, in, a, in a children's home somewhere in Ukraine, not getting the kind of intensive wraparound, loving parental family home that disabled children need to thrive. Um, as the Ukrainian system tries to contact the American parents and get them to come back and collect their child, or if not, try to find someone in the UK, Ukraine in Ukraine who will foster a child. And it's just, you know, it's not the only case. It's just desperately sad that these children are, you know, it reveals, I guess, some of the acquisitiveness behind surrogacy that can be acquisitive, where parents think they're not conceiving a child through unorthodox means. They really feel like they're buying a child. And if the goods that they have purchased do not meet their criteria, they will reject them, return them like it is a a, a bit of online shopping and, and move on. But actually these are human beings and they're just left as the kind of discarded detritus of this failed transaction. That's the problem, isn't it? So, so underlying it is this kind of commodification. The baby is a commodity that I've gone through an enormous amount of expensive and bureaucratic procedure but if my the commodity that I've gone through is then substandard in some way, well, of course I expect to have a money back guarantee. I mean, isn't that normal? And and so, you know, I'm just thinking through under this new arrangement. You know, so just suppose uh, the baby is born with catastrophic brain damage and requires 24 hour care, and and so on. Um, are the intended parents going to be there for this child? Um, and are they going to accept their parental responsibility? Um, and also, you know, sort of legal cases, what if it turned out that they felt that the damage was contributed to by the negligence of the host mother? that that it was her fault that the baby was damaged if she'd agreed to do what the doctors said this needn't have happened or if she'd reported that she'd had an infection or so then you know this poor baby becomes part of a legal battle as to who is responsible uh, who carries the can who pays for the care you can see the desperate complexities can't you yeah. And again, there have been I've read reports um, of stories where something like this has happened. You know, there have been some really concerning stories about incredibly controlling intended parents who who basically believe that they have rented this mother for nine months and they can tell her what to do. And that's beyond not just go to all your antenatal appointments and stop smoking, but it's eat these particular supplements see this particular doctor that we specify. And in some concerning cases, there have even been reports of women being kind of de facto housebound by a kind of controlling exploitative wealthy uh people overseas who are the commissioning parents who've said i don't trust you not to you know go and abuse alcohol while you're pregnant so i'm going to pay for someone to basically kind of manage and house sit you for nine months which is obviously incredibly concerning and 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 it's for these reasons that increasing numbers of developing nations are deciding that commercial surrogacy is just intrinsically exploitative this is before we even get into the kind of politics of what are often wealthy upper middle class white people paying to rent the womb of a 
a brown or black body from from the developing world, which is just really post-colonial and uncomfortable. But anyway, so there are lots of things like that. And and as you say, it, it cannot but become a commodification of, of, you know, designing the baby that you want in particular, picking a surrogate with the best possible kind of biological characteristics, the best womb, a great track record of their own children. It just, it reduces what should be something, there should be a degree of mystery about child conception there should be a degree of receiving this child from the lord as a gift in all their unknownness to this very very scrutinized and controlled process which i think does nobody any favors the child the surrogate or the commissioning parents yeah it's interesting just as an aside the um up to now uk judges have taken a kind of public policy decision that that a child cannot sue his or her mother for damages um you know so otherwise you know it would be open season every child would be saying it was my parents that damaged me and i'm going to sue them for every penny they've got so the judges have basically said um we're not going to on public policy grounds we're going to forbid that but of course here's an interesting question you know could the who is could the baby sue the host um or the parents sue the host because that she's not the mother. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's the kind of thing which le- the lawyers, you can see, will yeah. make hay on. But but sort of going back to this, if we sort of step back a bit, I, I find this very, very interesting at a kind of philosophical level because we live in a world where people increasingly, we're all control freaks. We We want to control every aspect of our life. And... And naturally, we would want to control every aspect of our children's lives as well. And so parents, you know, this very controlling element of parenthood. And and yet, um, by its very nature, childbirth is and, and, and begetting children is fundamentally uncontrollable. And um, and. And there's intuitions that we want it that way. We don't want necessarily to be able to select exactly. There's lots of concern about designer babies selecting the child. We, we, so there are deep intuitions that we should accept our babies, our children, as, as a gift. Um, and, and if you're not, quotes, religious, then, then it's a gift from nature or from the cosmos, you know, some kind of... Um, so I, I think that is, surrogacy is kind of pushing against that, isn't it? It's, it's increasingly going in the controlling, the controlling direction. Very much so. And I think it comes out of uh, the kind of groundswell of the war changing kind of social waters, which sees parents see children as an expression, an extension of themselves. And so, you know, even in little silly ways, like, you know, the growth of very kind of personalized, unique names, I think, is an expression of this idea that a child should be a a forum for self-expression of the parents. But I think also there's, and that's, you know, for the vast majority of children, which obviously are born kind of ordinary biological ways, I think there is a slightly concerning idea that is rather than welcoming in a brand new person to your family with their own identity and status, uh, we're saying, no, no, this is a kind of just one notch up from giving a dog or a cat. This is fundamentally about us uh, procuring. Um, and I think that happens already in in, in, in birth 
Um, and, and another aspect of that, which I think you see is, you know, the rise of, of abortion is often, I think, being driven by concerns of people saying, I wanted a child, but not that child that the cosmos or as we believe God has given them, you know, and that could be everything from, you know, not a disabled child, but even in some places and some cultures, not that right gender child. I wanted the other gender. And, and so I think there's a sense in which the rise of kind of abortion on demand has given people the illusion of control, the illusion of that, that when I conceive a child, I'm not rolling the dice and seeing what happens. I am controlling the process and surrogacy, gives actual genuine control because it says if you have enough money you can opt out of the difficult messy complicated business of of pregnancy and childbirth you can specify particularly if you're using donated gametes sperm or eggs you could specify things like hair color and eye color and various other traits you can control what the mother does during pregnancy it really does tend towards this idea of children as a and a commodity to be acquired I mean, just to be push back a bit on that, uh, hasn't it been the case that for, for the whole history of the human race, children have been commodities? I mean, we wanted to have an extra child because we need someone to do the harvest, you know, and, and we need a boy because we've got someone to take on the family nine and the, now we've got a girl, that girl's no use, so we're going to sort of push her off and we'll have another one because we need a boy. So there's a sense in which children have always, there's always been this tendency for adults to commodify and instrumentalize children to satisfy their needs, hasn't there? It's just, we're just doing it in a more high-tech approach. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, You know, I guess a mark of progress is potentially is that, you know, we don't leave unwanted children out to die of exposure as most ancient societies did. And as the early church famously kind of tried to resist and collecting these children before they die to look after them. But I think that exposes, you're, you're right, this is an ancient kind of urge within adult human beings to instrumentalize and commodify and try and control their child rearing process. But actually, what did the church say from the very first years after Jesus died and rose again, is they said, no, we're going to stand against this. And in fact, we will go out there and we will find children that the Greco-Roman world considered as worthless and that had been literally dumped on the street, die of exposure overnight. And we will collect them up and we will raise them as our own. And that was so remarkable and so astonishingly countercultural that it is being recorded by a whole host of baffled and bemused non-Christian historians, ancient historians writing about it, that these crazy sects do this thing. And I think that gives us a steer actually to how we should think about this today as Christians, which is that we really got to hold, resist that tension and hold on to this idea that children are a gift from God. Children exist not as means to an end, but as ends in themselves. And and therefore, we need to scrutinise carefully, is the growth in surrogacy a kind of unhelpful buttressing of of the kind of commodification of children? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well said. And uh, I think another sort of take on this, which I thought was quite helpful, is that somebody, and I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, distinguished between what they call two two aspects of parental love, that parental love has... There is accepting love that takes the child as they are uh, and accepts them uh, unconditionally, uh, however they are, and whether they don't, they fail to meet what I would wish my child to be. But there's also transforming love. So parental love doesn't just take the child as they are and say, well, I'm just going to accept you as you are. 
Transforming Love seeks to help the child to maximize their potential. It seeks to educate and uh, instruct and discipline and lead. Uh, so parental love always has these two aspects of, on the one hand, accepting love and transforming love. What's tending to happen to modern parents, not just with reproductive technology, but throughout the whole of childhood, is the transforming love, you know, this controlling uh, tiger parent who is jolly well make sure you're going to be a virtuoso violinist whether you like it or not you know this transforming love has overwhelmed the accepting love Mm, that's really interesting and this whole issue became very I had to do a lot of thinking about this um a few years ago because um my wife and I decided that we wanted to start our family through adoption and and so we did a lot of thinking and and training th- throughout the kind of assessment process um about you know what it means for children to be removed from their biological parents into the care system and then in foster care and then to be adopted and a lot of the practicalities but also like what does what does it mean for you to kind of choose a child and that was one of the things i remember we struggled with the most because ultimately, once you are approved as an adopter, the way it works in, in the UK, at least, is that you're effectively shown a kind of catalogue, a list of children in the system who might meet your criteria, whatever they are, and said, do you want to kind of express interest? Do you want to start a conversation with this child's social, social workers to say, could we be the right parents for that child? And there's no other way it could be, but it just felt so incredibly... Mm uncomfortable Mm. because of this deep intuition that we've been talking about that children should be received to use a horrible phrase warts and all and yet Mm. here we are we were given a lot of information you know detailed reports about their their social background their biological background genetic screening in some cases their health concerns all this stuff and said do you want to be their mum and dad or not and and we often said to ourselves you know part of us would love it if actually we could just opt out of that and just have the social worker just decide here's a child mm. which is just as uncontrolled as it would be as if mm. we had had a child by like biological means but obviously mm. that can't happen and so there was a real tension there but the, but the other thing that came out in the question of surrogacy really strongly what we were kind of in our training and the research we did was about the evidence is increasingly compelling that removing children from their biological parents um even at birth the youngest possible age is traumatic and can have lasting negative consequences on that child's life. And that's something, you know, we live with with our own daughter who was removed from her parent, biological parents at birth. Um, but but is also the case here for surrogacies. And, you know, in adoption, I think it's sadly necessary. You know, these are children who have been removed, taken into the care system because the state has has decided after much assessment that their parents cannot, provide a safe environment for them to grow and to thrive there might be questions around you know substance abuse neglect physical abuse sexual abuse you know clearly these are all for the the best the welfare of the child the child's need to be with their biological family is trumped by their need to not be abused but it seems to me in surrogacy what we're really doing is we're creating this trauma unnecessarily in a way because we are removing children from the from the the woman who carried them in her womb for nine months and and handing them over to people who might be biologically their their parents. But actually the the evidence is, is that actually there is a a bond, a psychosocial, emotional 
bond is formed during pregnancy and that nine month period of the first nine months of your life, which which matters. Um, and obviously this could be done really well. Then lots of surrogate surrogate mothers stay in close contact with uh, their kind of children long term. But it does seem to me, yeah, given what we know and the, and the kind of evidence about removing children, it does seem to me concerning that we are in surrogacy effectively creating children with this kind of it's often called the primal wound you know this first trauma yes that's right and and there is a sort of growing neuroscience evidence of the way that the the unborn baby learns to recognize the mother the mother's voice the the environment the mother's body even the taste of the amniotic fluid and, and apparently when a newborn baby uh, has been shown to have a preference for the breast milk of its own mother. And the reason for that is it's the same taste. It's got the same taste as the amniotic fluid and, and recognizing the mother's voice and, and all these kind of things. So, so yes, there, there is a sort of neurological and scientific basis for, for the fact that surprise, surprise, babies are designed to recognize their own mothers and create a, a bond, a, a relationship uh, which which comes from before birth and therefore just to take a baby away from the birth mother in itself is is traumatic so I suppose just uh, coming towards the end thinking about distinctively Christian responses to this I I think I'm just thinking ahead in in my mind of how you might counsel somebody who was saying, you know, I'm really thinking of going in this direction. Um, You know, suppose uh, to take an extreme case that it was a a Christian couple and and for various medical reasons, the... um, the woman was unable to carry her own child. I mean, there are cases where the womb is doesn't develop or is is very abnormal. It's simply not possible for her to carry her own child. Uh, w- would this be a Christian option for me to, um, you know, my sister um, is offering to carry our child and I know that she would be very loving and, She'll remain in touch with us. She'll, you know, after the child's born. Uh, do you think this would be a, a Christian option? Yeah, it's a very difficult question, isn't it? I think particularly if it is a purely kind of altruistic, um, uh, you know, approach by a close family member who will remain kind of part of the family. And, you know, there are some, I know there are some theologians, some Christians who are, who are doing research and writing on this about, that you know what you might call relational surrogacy can actually um be kind of an act of love an act of grace of of kind of generosity um uh, some people even go as far as suggesting that mary herself the mother of jesus was was a surrogate mother which i i'm aware is a very contentious theological issue that i'm not really smart enough to delve into nor do we have time but so there's certainly voices saying that this is a this could be a really kind of compassionate Christian response. I, I guess I would have questions, and one of the questions would be, you know, what where does the drive for a for a a child come from, and not just a child, but a child who is biologically related to you? In in the vast majority of surrogacy cases at the moment, they're gestational, where 
the father or the mother has donated eggs or sperm or both. Um, what is what is so significant for you about having a genetic your genetic material in your child, and you're at, so significant that you're prepared to go to the, all the kind of hoo ha and sometimes cost of finding another womb to, to gestate that child? And I, I think I would ask that question. And that's maybe that comes back to our earlier conversation around commodification and control. And also, I would say, given, you know, and clearly I'm I'm biased in this question, I, I can't be neutral around the issue of adoption because it affects me so personally. But but given the reality of the the children in the UK alone, and I'm sure it's similar in other countries, the thousands of children who are stuck in in interim foster care or even sometimes in children's homes waiting for forever families. Uh, I, I guess I would tentatively want to inquire, like, could another more redemptive way, rather than creating a child who will have the kind of primal wound of being removed from their family, could you find a child already suffering from that wound, but who can't live with their birth parents because they're not safe and, and offer a loving home for that child instead? Could that be a, a, a more redemptive arc to draw in your own family history. And I say that being fully aware from personal experience that adoption is not a, an easy decision. It's not a cost-free decision for you as parents, nor for the child. It's complicated. It probably won't be right for a lot of people for a lot of good reasons, but I would love to see more churches encourage their members who are experiencing infertility to kind of prayerfully consider adoption as a, as an option. I'd love the church to take on this kind of mission of, you know, closing down children's homes and you know making foster care redundant because there are so many christian couples coming forward to adopt the kind of vulnerable innocent needy children in the system yeah and um i think i think your point about it not being cost free is important because as we often say when counseling people you know facing these kind of painful options there is no cost free option if you if you go the surrogacy route that has all kinds of of costs and, and difficulties and uh, and dangers and if you go down the adoption route that also has significant emotional personal costs and unpredictabilities but the big difference as i see it is is the fact that as you say in in surrogacy, we are choosing a very, very complex technological process in order to create a new life with all the uncertainties that that's involved. And and if you like that, theologically, that's to do with technology and creation that God has put into the creation, this possibilities and so on. Whereas um, in adoption, you are saying here is this life that is already here and that desperately needs parents and people to love and care for it and I'm offering myself we are offering ourselves and that's an act of grace that's an act of redemption um and it's an and and a wonderfully Christ-like act so yes it's it's not cost-free but it does carry something about the gospel doesn't it's at its heart it is a living example of the gospel I hope so I think so and I think the other other angle to, to discuss here briefly is is um, one of the things that came up really interestingly when we started talking to our kind of Christian friends about being in the adoption process and, the, and our reasons for choosing kind of that way of starting a family was that you would hear more than one occasion um, kind of often secondhand stories from from Christians, sometimes kind of prospective grandparents, but others who say, well, well I just if, if the child isn't my blood and flesh and blood, 
then they're not really my child or my grandchild. And and there's this real deep sense that some people, many Christians hold, which is that the genetics matters and that, um, you know, for example, if your own biological child then adopts in some sense, because that child doesn't carry any of your DNA, any of your blood, then they're not really your grandchild. And, and that just really saddens me, aside from the kind of really kind of hurtfulness to that child. But it also, I think it profoundly misses the point about the kind of new covenant that we operate within. And this is not to say that biology doesn't matter. Clearly, biology does matter, as we just discussed. You know, the evidence is clear that that biology matters. But actually, as Christians, we have all been reborn again into a new family, a spiritual family that transcends our simple bloodlines and biologies. And that's why us, you know, me as a non-Jew Gentile can be welcomed into God's covenant people, despite not being circumcised, not being a son of Abraham, because if Jesus has inaugurated this kind of post-genetic community almost. And, and, and as Christians, we've all come to understand that family can be bigger than just those I share my DNA with because we have our brothers and sisters and our church families. And so it saddens me that when some Christians sometimes fall into what is quite a worldly sense, understanding of family, that it's all based on bloodline and DNA um, and, and reject adoption or pursue surrogacy on those grounds alone. Yeah, well, here, here, and I'd say uh, I'll answer that. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, and um, it's we've gone we've gone quite a a wide area. But uh, fascinated to hear if there are other people have comments to come back to us on this. Um, we're having these regular Q and A sessions, so maybe this would be a good topic to uh, to discuss further. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear your thoughts, um, particularly disagreements. You know, we're, we're, as you say, we're not experts on this. And these are just kind of some kind of our opening thoughts and having kind of dipped a toe into some of the research. So we'd love to hear um, uh, what you guys listeners think. Um, please do get in touch. You can email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to pick up on one of our regular Q&A sessions, some some thoughts about this and, and the kind of fertility questions and Christian responses to that in general or anything else. Um, we're very open to, to picking up on previous episodes or, or things, maybe developments you've seen in the news um, that you think it would be interesting to discuss. Um, uh, there's also um, some of you might have heard we, we actually discussed surrogacy on uh, another premiere show uh, the kind of main premiere unbelievable show which was then hosted by justin briley um back last year just around february march time um which was kind of pegged on this whole uh, issue of uh, ukraine and the war and how that was cutting apart surrogates and intended parents um so if you're interested in going a bit further on this topic and hearing some other voices um we put a link to that podcast in the description and also a link to a feature that i i wrote little self-plug here about uh, surrogacy and and uh, the church um but yeah otherwise uh for lots or more things to read listen to and watch on dad's website that's john wyatt w-y-a-t-t dot com uh please do get in touch with us molad at premier.org.uk and uh, we'll speak to you next week bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.